That conscience is that part of you that can either be at peace, it can be at rest, or it can cause a wrestling and a stirring and a discomfort in you. Your conscience is that part of you that, that really only you and the Lord know. And, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I know with certainty that we've all wrestled with a guilty conscience. We've all wrestled with a conscience that was not clean, that was not at peace. And when we wrestle with that crushing impact of a conscience, it can fill you with shame, with regret. When you know you've done something and you're not free from it, it can actually cause depression, anxiety. It can actually lead to physical symptoms. It can disrupt your relationships. And people try to handle a guilty conscience, a weighted conscience in all sorts of ways. I've experienced in my own life personally and in my ministry, I've seen at least four things that people do to try to handle a guilty conscience. And you may immediately go to one of these four ways, or maybe for you they're like steps, and you process through each of them. But but first thing you may do is you may try to rationalize whatever is making your conscience feel guilty. Let's say you snap at your spouse or you snap at your kids. You try to talk yourself out of feeling guilty. You say, well, it wasn't that bad. I didn't hit anybody. Or, you know, he or she deserved it anyway, and there's other people that would have done things a lot worse, and, you know... You try to rationalize it. You think, well, maybe God doesn't even know what it's like. You know, he doesn't know the kind of pressure that I was under. And so you make these attempts to, to justify yourself, or maybe you rationalize things by blaming other people, or you try to downplay it. You do anything you can to try to talk yourself out of feeling guilty. Or maybe for you, you don't rationalize it, or after you've tried that, it doesn't work. You go on to the second possibility, which is to su- suppress it. You try to suppress your guilt and your unclean conscience. You try to ignore any memory of what it is that you did wrong. And so maybe you clicked on something you shouldn't have, and you looked at something you shouldn't have, and it satisfied you, and so you pretend it didn't happen. You do everything in your power to think about something else in hopes that maybe it'll go away, that the way that you displeased God, dishonored your spouse, the guilt that you feel, maybe it'll eventually just su- fade if you suppress the memory of it ever happening. But if that doesn't work, you may try to compensate for your guilt. You know, you feel bad because you've been super critical the last couple of weeks towards your coworkers and towards family and friends. And so, in an effort to help yourself feel better, you're going to start doing a bunch of good things to compensate for your criticism, to make up for it. So you go out of your way to be really helpful. You go out of your way to, to say really nice things about people, maybe specifically the woes that you've been critical of. Hoping that if you do enough good things, that that good pile will be higher than your bad pile and you can compensate for the thing making your conscience feel guilty. But if all else fails, if you can't rationalize it or suppress it or compensate for your guilt, you just get to a place where you take comfort in it. And so maybe due to stress, due to guilt or anxiety, maybe you've been drinking a little too much and you've been checking out and you begin to feel bad about it, and your guilt makes you feel miserable because you know you've been misusing alcohol as a coping mechanism, and so you decide, you know what, I actually deserve to feel miserable. What kind of person would do what I'm doing? I deserve to feel miserable, and you begin to tell yourself that you deserve to feel bad because you are bad, you say, and eventually you take comfort in your guilt, and and you start feeling good to feel bad. You start beating yourself up, and oddly, you find comfort in a guilty conscience. But, but none of these things are effective. None of these things are effective in cleansing and removing your guilt. None of these things ultimately solve your biggest problem with guilt, which is that it cuts you off from access to God. See, outside of Christ, 
Every man and woman is guilty before God. As Pastor Matt said last week, we were created to know God, created to be in His presence. But that can't happen when we're covered by guilt. See, outside of Christ, we're unable to see God, to know God, to draw close to God. Our guilt keeps us at a distance from our Heavenly Father. And even as Christians, when we stumble into to willful sin, we make ourselves feel, and I think ultimately it's we who make ourselves feel like, well, I'm distant from God now. And rather than lean into the work of Christ and seek forgiveness and remind ourselves what Jesus has done, we feel like we no longer have access, the access that God has given us. And God in Christ has given us an all-access pass into His presence. But because of our own guilt and shame and our refusal to put faith in Christ, we are cut off. But again, that's why Christ came. That's why we celebrate his birth. And this morning is going to be our last message for this year in the book of Hebrews. But as we have kicked off our season of Advent, don't worry, this will be a Christmas message. Just wait for it. We'll get there. And we're going to go through some, some detailed background of the Old Testament covenant and the tabernacle. But it all culminates in the reality that God became flesh. That that the Savior became incarnate, and that we do have access. And so we're going to see this morning, as you see in the outline in your bulletin, that, that through Christ we have access to God. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, picking up in the first 14 verses. It's page 1005. I can still see a couple of blue hardback Bibles on the back, so please grab one of those. As we've been reading this theme the last few chapters, and we'll have a couple more sermons on it after Christmas, that Jesus is our great high priest. And let's not rush past this, because the author of Hebrews spends multiple chapters on this for a reason. We need a mediator. We need a high priest to cleanse our conscience, to go into God's presence on our behalf so that we can have full access to God. We've seen before in this letter that the author of Hebrews often assumes that the readers have a lot of Old Testament background that, let's face it, you and I don't often have. And these references that he makes in passing, he expects that his readers know what's going on, and we often don't. And in chapter 9, the same thing's going to happen. He's writing about the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant in Israel before the time of Christ, and the worship and the sacrificial system at what's called the tabernacle. The tabernacle, you can read about in the book of Exodus. It was designed and built and constructed for a purpose, for a place for God to meet with his people. In fact, it was called the tent of meeting. And we're going we're gonna to read about this in Hebrews chapter 9 today. It was, it was made to be a place of worship. And imagine a big tent, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. And it was built from a wood frame, and the wood poles were covered in gold. That frame was then covered with cloth, beautiful, elaborate cloth made of blue and purple and scarlet yarn. It had a roof with four different layers of cloth and animal hides. And across the front of this 15-foot wide opening of the one tent was a cloth curtain. And the craftsmanship was elaborate. The, the price of it was virtually priceless in the ancient world. And the whole thing was designed to be mobile. It was a tent because it could be disassembled and the Levites would carry the tabernacle, if you remember the story of Israel, in the wilderness. And as they would travel, then they would break camp for the night and they would set it back up in the center of the camp. Now this, this big tent, 45 feet long, was surrounded by a courtyard, a fenced courtyard. 
that was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. And there were these 60 wooden pillars that, again, they carried through the wilderness, covered with bronze. And there was a curtain around this courtyard, seven and a half feet tall, taller than, than you to see over. And the Levites would stand literally as security guards around the courtyard of the tabernacle, preventing anybody who was unauthorized from entering. And in the courtyard of the tabernacle, outside of the tent itself, there was a bronze basin that the priests would use to cleanse themselves, and there was a bronze altar, the altar upon which they would burn the sacrifices that were made to worship God and to make atonement for sin. All of this is outside the tabernacle. Inside the tabernacle, it was divided into two sections. The front two-thirds of this tent was called the holy place. The back third of the tent was called the holy of holies, or we sometimes just translate it the most holy place. Two sections, and that's what we're going to read about, these two sections, in Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 5. That was the setup. Now hear the word of God. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now some of you are like, that was quite a bit of detail. But but the author of Hebrews is a man after my own heart. He's like, I would love to go into more detail, but we got to go on to the main point, right? So he stops there. So let's just go with the detail that he's given us. In the first covenant, the old covenant, there were rules in place that regulated worship of God. There were rituals in this holy sanctuary, this tabernacle that had two sections. Now remember, by the time that the first century Hebrew Christians are reading this, the tabernacle had been replaced by a stone temple in Jerusalem. But the tabernacle is the OG. It's the original place where God's people would come to worship. Now, keep in mind, most people never saw past the outer court. They never went into the tabernacle. They had seen the altar from the courtyard. They had maybe gotten a glimpse when the priest went in and they saw him open up the curtain, but they never went inside. And so he explains the front two-thirds, the holy place of this tent, contained a few elements, three elements. One was a golden lampstand, this lamp made out of pure gold. It had six branches modeled after an almond tree, and it provided symbolic light. But more than that, there there were candles that were lit, oil lamps that were lit that would provide literal light inside the tent, and the priests would go in and regularly refill the light of this golden lampstand. There was a table in the first section of the holy place called the bread of presence, and there were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and every Sunday they would go, or excuse me, Saturday, their Sabbath day would have been Saturday, they would go in and place 12 fresh loaves of bread. There was an altar of incense in the front two-thirds of the tabernacle, It was a wooden altar overlaid with gold. It was smaller than the altar outside where the sacrifices were made. And the priests would go in each morning and each evening, and they would burn incense on this altar. Now, the altar stood right at the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. And so the author of Hebrews doesn't actually mention it later until he talks about the the most holy place. 
because it was seen as kind of the link between the first section and the second section. Because that incense would, and the smoke would burn, and it would, it would flow into that front most holy place. You see, read about that in sections, verses 3 to 5. The holy of holies, the back 15 feet. Now, if you were following along with your geometry, the front section was a perfect cube, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. The most holy place on earth, and it contained only one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. It was the central piece of the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box about three and three-quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, and two and a quarter feet high. And we read in verse 5 that the Ark of the Covenant was covered with a a pure, 100% pure golden slab. It was a lid. It was a lid on this box. And on the lid were two golden cherubim. Those were angels that guarded, literally guarded the Ark of the Covenant, overshadowed what we call the mercy seat, or sometimes translated as the atonement cover. And, and that mercy seat, that golden slab with the angels guarding it, was considered to be the throne of God on earth. That was the seat where God's presence would dwell amidst his people. Pretty amazing, pretty glorious, right? That, that's why Indiana Jones was so set on trying to find it, the Ark of the Covenant, right? No one entered this holy place, this most holy place where the Ark dwelled, except one guy, the high priest, who went in one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, this bo- it was a box, there was three things. One was an urn. Inside the urn was some manna, some bread that had been preserved from the time that Israel had wandered in the wilderness. The second thing was Aaron's staff, the very first high priest, and it said the staff that budded. I don't have time to go into it. Read Numbers chapter 16. Aaron's staff miraculously budded, meaning it had like flower buds grow on it, to prove that Aaron's line was the authentic high priestly line. And the third thing were the stone tablets. Two stone tablets at the very finger of God had written the Ten Commandments. And so you've got the provision of God, the priesthood of God, and the law of God. So this holy place, as I said, was regulated. You got guards standing outside. You had a fence. You had curtains. And all these regulations and all this beautiful ornamental tent was meant to communicate one thing to the people of God. God is holy, and you, not, and you cannot go near. You can't go in. You have to stand at a distance. Because access to God is restricted, strictly restricted. Do not draw close. Do not draw near to God. And you can imagine a big sign, sinners not allowed. They didn't actually have that. but. And yet, God was still there. He still wanted to put himself in the middle of the camp. He still wanted to provide a a, a throne on earth where his presence would dwell. And while you could not go in, it was always within view. It was always within sight in the camp of the Israelites. And you would watch the priests perform their rituals. And you would watch them go in and wonder with mystery. I wonder what it's like to get that close to God. Can you imagine living in that system? Growing up, going to the tabernacle for worship every Sabbath, coming for the seven festivals, but never being able to draw close. Can you imagine growing up where there was a God who said, follow me, I am your God, you are my people, follow these priests, these are your mediators, you can come close, but not too close. You can draw near, but not too near. You cannot come in, you cannot be in the holy place in my presence. The presence of God was always regulated. 
And, and yet still, God provided a way for his people to worship him, provided a way for his people to, to come within a safe distance, you might say, to atone for their sins, to worship, to view him from a distance. As I said, there were at least seven festivals in Israel that took place at the tabernacle, the weekly Sabbath, where you'd come for rest and worship, the monthly festival of the new moon, first day of each month, where you'd gather at the tabernacle and give thanksgiving and celebrate. You had the festival of unleavened bread and Passover, where you'd celebrate redemption from slavery in Egypt. The festival of weeks, or first fruits, where you would give thanks at the end of the harvest. The festival of trumpets, where you'd come and make loud noise and commemorate the first day of the seventh month of the year, celebrated by modern-day Jews as, as New Year's Day, Rosh Hashanah. The Day of Atonement and the Festival of Booths, where you'd come and live in tents to commemorate the time of Israel living in the wilderness. Again, as we go now to verses 6 through 10, this is all the setup, something that the first century Hebrew Christians would have been well aware of. We read in the next section about the holy place, the special, special rituals that were performed only on the Day of Atonement, and how Jesus came to reform this sacrificial system. So read now with me in verses 6 through 10, and let's consider how Christ has reformed this system. It says, these preparations, all the things just described, and even much more detail, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So again, people of God, 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi helped out at the temple, the Levites, but only one line, the line of Aaron, was the, the priestly line. They were the only ones that could go into the holy section, the front two-thirds, and they would do that somewhat regularly, refill the oil lamps, put the bread, uh, sprinkle blood occasionally for certain sacrifices, sprinkle blood on the curtain of the Holy of Holies. They had special clothes and special rites of purification and cleansing rituals that would enable them to be clean enough to go into the tabernacle. And they would offer animal sacrifices, again, out in the courtyard. And they would sometimes sprinkle that blood on the curtain. But, but all of this they either did in the outer courtyard or in that front part, the holy place. But verse 7 says, into the second section, the holy of holies, the most holy place... Only the high priest would go one day a year, and that was the Day of Atonement. And, and even he, the, the text says, wouldn't dare go in to the Holy of Holies without what? Without taking blood. Without blood from the sacrifice he's made to atone for himself. And it says, for the unintentional sins of the people. All those things that had been forgotten throughout the year or that had been overlooked. Why, why blood? Why is blood so important to the Levitical system? Well, as we learn about in, in Leviticus 17, 11, it is the blood by reason of the life 
that makes atonement for sin. See, the Lord God had set this into place because the blood of an animal means that the life has been taken, been taken as a substitute for the people. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And so either the people of God must perish or these animals as a, as a symbolic sacrifice, a substitute. And so the blood symbolizes that the life has been taken and so the, the priest would go in. And only one day a year, the Day of Atonement in Hebrew, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go in. Now, unlike most festivals, the Day of Atonement was a single day gathering and it was not a celebration. The people would fast, they would pray, they would mourn, they would repent, and they'd come to sacrifice and to atone for their sin. When we say sin needs to be atoned for, what we mean is that Amends need to be made. To make atonement is to pacify or appease the divine wrath of God because of our rebellion. 364 days a year, there were rituals and the priests were working at the temple. They were in the courtyard. They, would in the, they were in the front section. But this one day, atonement would be made in a special way and the high priest would enter in to the holy place. You can go back and read later in Leviticus 16. It describes what happened on the Day of Atonement. The very first thing that would be done is that the high priest would sacrifice a bull. He would then carry some of the blood into the Holy of Holies. And he would do all this to atone for his own sins and for the sins of his family. The very first thing that day would be to atone for the high priest's sins. And he'd carry some of the blood of the bull into the the holy place. But before he did that, he would light smoke. He would light incense on the altar of incense, and he would let that smoke fill the air, and he would carry the incense into the most holy place, and he would sprinkle seven times blood from the bull on the Ark of the Covenant. But the smoke made it such that even when he was inside, he could barely see what was going on. And even then, the presence of God was clouded. The second thing that the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement was to offer a sacrifice to cleanse the temple, excuse me, to cleanse the tabernacle or temple later. See, because even though the tabernacle was designed to atone for people's sins, to to cleanse their conscience, to give them a way to God, the very act of people gathering at the tabernacle, the very act of the daily sacrifices, made the tabernacle impure. And so the Day of Atonement, they had to purify the very tabernacle itself. And so again, the high priest would sacrifice a goat, he would light the incense, he would go back into the most holy place and again, sprinkle blood seven times on the Ark of the Covenant. To remind God that this sacrifice has been made as a substitute for the people. The third thing that he would do on the Day of Atonement was to remove guilt from the camp. Now this actually didn't involve any slaying of animals, which some of you animal lovers with weak stomachs are like, thank God. And here's what they would do, the third ritual on this day. They would take a goat, what we now call the scapegoat, and the high priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat and he would confess all the sins of the people from the previous year. I sort of wonder how long that took, right? And he would, in essence, lay the guilt of the people from the previous year onto the head of the goat. They would then lead the goat out of the camp, and they would release it into the wild to wander off. As if to say, the sins of the nation are now taken away. It's almost like God is saying, look, whatever didn't get covered through these sacrifices throughout the year, we're going to load up on the goat and send away, which makes you wonder, where do they go? I like to think that it's sort of a foreshadowing of like this scapegoat that carries the sins. He carries them away until what? Until a later time when God's going to come back and deal with those sins in a proper way through the future Messiah. 
Look back at the text. Look back at verse 8. Through all of this, all of these rituals on the Day of Atonement, the Holy Spirit is making something clear. What's he making clear? That the way into the holy place, the way into God's presence has not yet been opened up. Right? See, the tabernacle was this beautiful, elaborate, wonderful place to come worship. And you'd bring gifts and you'd make sacrifices. But what does it say? It would never cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. It could never give you full access to God. All you could do was stand in the courtyard. All you could do was watch the priest go into the first section. The, whole, the, the high priest still had to light the incense, still had to fill that holy place with smoke. Even then, verse 9 says, it's just a representation it's just a repre- an earthly representation of the true throne of God that can never make our conscience clear. Because the presence of God is regulated, it's restricted, it's not yet opened. And so verse 10 says that all of these beautiful symbolic rituals, ultimately all they did was help with outer cleansing. They just, they just helped the people with Practices related to ceremonial food and drink. It was external washing for ritual cleansing, but couldn't cleanse your conscience. Couldn't remove your guilt. And they all served, all of this elaborate system served to point forward to the Messiah, to the one who would one day come and remove our guilt, cleanse our conscience. Now, even at that time, there were faithful Israelites who were saved, not because of the rituals, but through the rituals. These rituals that foreshadowed Christ. And just as we now look back to our Messiah, they would look ahead to the Messiah. Maybe not fully articulating, but but having a sense that these rituals were pointing to something greater. And their salvation came through Christ just as ours does. But that entire system was always meant to be temporary. It was never meant to be lasting. It was always meant to foreshadow and point the way towards something greater. What's the greater thing? Verse 10 calls it the time of the Reformation. Now, this this is not some early prophetic prediction of John Calvin and Martin Luther, okay? It's not that Reformation. Reformation here is talking about a, a rectification, a renovation, a restoration of the system of worship and sacrifices. The Greek word here means to set something right to rectify something that's damaged or defective. That's what Jesus would come to do, to restore this system. I am going to ask you to raise your hands for this. How many of you like watching home renovation shows? Yeah. I think the original one was the Extreme Makeover Home Edition, right? And the crew would come in, and they'd take this dilapidated, messy, falling apart house, and they would completely renovate it, Right? And, and to the point where, like, if you came in at the end of the show, you'd be like, wait, what? I saw the picture from the, when they first, that's not the same house, right? And what would they do? They'd pull the bus up, right? And they'd gather the family in front of the bus. You remember this? What did they say? Say, on the count of three, right? Move that bus. And the bus would pull away. And you'd see the eyes and the face light up on the family that, see, that has seen their house being renovated. And they don't even recognize it. What? It, it, Inevitably, at least one of them is going to say, is this even the same house, right? This is the concept that we see here in Hebrews chapter 9 that Jesus came to do. This complete transformation, this renovation of the system of worship, system of sacrifices, system of of knowing God, coming into God's presence. 
there's a, there's a renovation show, I, I forget which one it is, but my wife and I watch it sometimes, and instead of the bus, they actually build like a huge 10-foot tall, 20-foot long, like a, a mural of the original house, and they put it in the street, and instead of looking at a bus, the family stands and they look at the old house, and it's split down the middle, right? And, and they open up the picture of this old house, and behind it is the new house, and you get this beautiful representation, right, of like, there's no way that's the same house, and yet it is. And so God takes the fragments, the symbols, the representation, the shadows of the old covenant, and he transforms it into what we now have as followers of Christ, reforming this beautiful system that is our heritage. One commentator said that all of the restrictions surrounding access to the first covenant sanctuary were the Holy Spirit's signal that radical repair was needed. Radical repair was needed if God's people were ever to make their way into God's presence. And so Christ came through his birth. He began, he inaugurated this radical reformation. And and through his second coming, this reformation will be consummated. And so here you have it. Merry Christmas. I told you this was going to be a Christmas message, right? Merry Christmas. Christ came to bring the radical reformation on this system that kept people out so that now we could be invited in. The Son of God, born as a man, to fulfill and redeem this system of worship and sacrifice. God became flesh. How many of you ever fell asleep at night or walked into a room and just had this sense that you weren't good enough. Some of you showed up here this morning and felt like, you know what, I don't really belong here. Some of you have lived your life feeling like you're on the outside looking in, whether it's being cut from a team, whether it's not being invited to a party, whether it's being turned down by the man or woman that that you thought you were supposed to spend your life with, whether it's not being invited into a particular group or association, or maybe even before the Lord, you feel like you're on the outside, standing, looking in, unable to draw close, unable to draw near, unable to be with those you want to be with, close to those you want to be close, feeling disconnected, feeling separated, feeling like you're not good enough. And that was how the whole Old Testament system was designed, with curtains and barriers and walls and regulations. And you know what happened after Jesus was born and he lived and he died on the cross to atone for our sins? He rose from the dead. And the scriptures say that at his death, the temple and the curtain, that temple separating the holy place from the most holy place, the throne of God on earth was torn, was ripped from top to bottom, opening the way. And God now says through Christ, draw near. Come close. You no longer have to stand on the outside and look in because Jesus has opened up the way into God's presence. And now we can draw near because our consciences have been cleansed. We can draw near with a clear conscience because the guilt and shame and regret and feelings of worthlessness and feeling separated and set off and not good enough, Jesus says, I'm washing you clean, fully and finally. Which leads us to the last section we're going to look at this morning in verse 11. 
How Jesus has entered into the Holy of Holies. Jesus has made a way. Jesus has entered in. He has full access to his Father's throne, and he invites us in, not just to come after him, but to come with him. Hear this word, Hebrews 9, 11. But, man, you got to love a section that starts out that way. There's a but. We've been set off, set apart, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, when Christ appeared, the true high priest of good things to come, better things, he went in, verse 11 says, into the more perfect tent. Not something of this creation, not made with human hands, but he went through the greater tabernacle, entering right into the very holy place of God in heaven, into God's presence. And verse 12 says he didn't take the atonement blood of some goat or some bull, but he went in with his own blood into the holy of holies once and for all. His perfect righteous, unblemished record. See, the shedding of animal blood ultimately cannot atone for sin. Because an animal can never represent us before God. Right? An animal can't truly be a substitute for you or I because it's a, it's a, it's a different entity. Unlike humans, animals are not created in the image of God. Humans are created to image and reflect God on earth and so it had to be a human being to bear our guilt, to take on the record of your wrongs, to stand before God on your behalf and saying, this one belongs to me. I represent him. I represent her. See, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement, and it's the blood of the life of God's own son. And he obtained and he bought eternal redemption for you. Yes, forgiveness of sins. Yes, release from your guilt, but also freedom from the slavery to those sinful urges. Release from ultimate punishment of death, adoption into God's family, purification to be a son or daughter of God, new birth and new life. He has, he has obtained for us a redemption that is eternal. And, and I get the image of, of Jesus with boldness. Do you get him Walking right in, the curtain torn, going into the holy place and saying, Father, here is my blood. These are my people. I have now bought for them forgiveness. I have now bought for them eternal redemption, securing their right to come into your presence. And he doesn't bring some, some little sprinkling of an animal. He brings his own blood bore on the cross, the very Son of God. And so verses 13 and 14 to drive the point home. They say, look, think about it for a minute. Think about it. If, if all this blood and ashes of goats and bulls and cows, if the, the people who were themselves defiled, they sprinkled this to try to offer themselves as an atonement. If all of that 
could somehow sanctify people on the outside, and that's really what it was about in the nation of Israel, was external sanctification. The author says, how much more? How much more will the blood of Jesus Christ purify us on the inside? And you say, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm ashamed of. You're right, I don't, but God does. And he says it's enough. See, by his sacrifice, you are now purified, truly, fully. Finally, you are pure before your maker. And your conscience is cleansed. Cleansed, it says, from all the dead works that you once thought could help you, save you, get you to God. And so no longer... When you stumble into sin, as you will continue to do, even those of us that are following Christ, no longer do you need to rationalize what you've done wrong. No longer do you need to try to suppress what you've done wrong. No longer do you need to try to make a, do a bunch of good things to compensate or, or to just find comfort in it. Now you can go to Christ and be truly cleansed and be free and be washed. And the record of your wrongs before God no longer exists. And for those that are here today joining us who don't know that peace, man, we're so glad you're here. And please, please know this. You can draw close. You can be clean. You can be free. You can know your creator. Listen, every dysfunction, every pain, every hurt, every brokenness, every sickness, every harm done to you, every wrong that you've done to others is ultimately the collateral damage of our broken relationship with God. And if you cannot have access to God, if you cannot stand in his presence, if you cannot sit in the lap on his throne as a son or daughter of God, you will not find freedom. You will not find meaning or cleansing or hope or purpose or life because everything is broken unless you're standing, sitting in the Father's presence, receiving this all-access pass to live life now and forever with your creator. See, now with a clean, clear conscience, the way to God is opened. We can enter into God's presence. And so we hear again our theme verse from Hebrews, Hebrews 4.16, that with confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, the way has been opened, and you can enter in. You no longer have to stand far off or feel separated or feel unworthy. And, and what is the point of this? What is the point of us having access into God's presence? Is it so that we can sit back and bask? What did the, the final verse say? What does verse 14 say? The whole purpose of this, we have access to God to serve the living God. To give our lives to the living God. We now enter in with a pure conscience to serve the living God. He calls us now to walk by faith, to walk in obedience, to walk with confidence, to live as a follower of Christ with acts of mercy, with acts of service, with a life of love, entering into God's presence and inviting others. Say, come with me, come with me and know your Father, know your Creator, know eternal redemption, to live for God, to serve the living God with every waking moment, every thought, every word, every feeling, every deed done to worship and serve this wonderful creator that has given us this great redemption. Amen? Friends, listen, the worship team is going to come back up. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you in to, to worship. And, and I'm going to invite you as we do that 
And if you, listen, if you need to turn to somebody near you and ask them to pray for you, by all means, I'm not going to stand in the way of that. But, but the call today as we worship and as we close is for you just to get with God. And maybe you kneel right there at your seat. Kneeling is such a powerful, profound way to just express penance and humility before God. Maybe you kneel at your seat and you say, God, cleanse my conscience. Whether it be for the first time or whether it be things that you've been hiding from him this week. Say, God, cleanse my conscience. Help me to be close to your presence. And so, Father, we pray now. We come to you now as broken, sinful, hurting people apart from Christ, in desperate need of mercy and grace. We come to your throne of grace asking for a reminder of the work of Christ, filling us again with the Spirit's assurance that we are clean, that our consciences are clear, and we kneel before you. Yes, figuratively, but also literally, we we get down on our knees in gratitude and thanksgiving, humbly crying out to you. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we've kept ourselves at a distance where we've been content to stay outside the curtain rather than go in. Help us to live as men and women that press in, into relationship, into intimacy, walking into the throne of grace and and sitting and living with you. We thank you that Christ has come, that through his birth and life and death and resurrection and his ultimate return, we can be made clean. And so we rest now and we ask you to empower us and fill us with your spirit, fill us with the assurance of who we are in Christ. Give us life. Give us love. Give us hope. We pray and we worship in Jesus' name. Amen.